It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I've been having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Tracy Perryman, the guest for today. And I was asking her about her background and the evolution of the work that she does, which we're going to discuss on so many levels today. And she started telling me the story of how her mother influenced her work and how it expanded the way that she was thinking about supporting people. And Dr. P, I would love to go back to that story. You were sharing about going to the University of Michigan. Is that right? That's where you studied. That is correct. Yes. And take me back to that point and then bring me through what you learned after you finished school. So, yes, I was pursuing my bachelor's degree in psychology at the University of Michigan, and I became very interested in developmental psychology and particularly children and understanding children. And we had final papers, research papers that we could write for graduation requirements. And I found myself voluntarily doing research within daycare centers. And what I did was look at different daycare centers and the activities that I saw based upon the socioeconomic status of the families. And so I visited some um, daycares that serve primarily affluent families. I also visited the University of Michigan's child care center. And then I came back to my hometown of Toledo, which was only 40 minutes away, to study my mother's Head Start classroom. And so I was really impressed by the fullness of the curriculum in the day for children who were labeled under-resourced, right? And the love she put into it and the literacy-rich environment, but particularly the emphasis on social and emotional development and embedding all of that into learning. So those were some of the things that I learned before graduation, then also doing a lot of the research theoretically, you know, how children learn, their cognitions and all of those things and how they respond to social situations. So when I graduated, I thought that I knew a little something (laughs) about the work and what it meant to serve and work with children. And very quickly, I figured out that I knew a lot less than I thought. So by that time, we had moved on and started child care through our nonprofit, Center of Hope Family Services. And so I moved from the researcher to the practitioner working in the space alongside my mother. And... I could not get anything right. I made so many mistakes when it was time to translate the research into practice. And so I frustrated her so. I could just tell by her face, like it was just face palms all day. Not saying anything inappropriate, doing anything inappropriate for children, but not understanding how to manage a classroom effectively, right? And not knowing how to stimulate learning in a way that was developmentally appropriate for children that small. And so after making mistake after mistake and, you know, rightfully feeling inadequate at that point because I was under, I didn't have the skills. I decided, let me just sit down and be quiet. Like, just stop trying to teach. Stop (laughs) trying to do the work. And figure out and observe why are my choices the incorrect choices in these situations? And so I started following my mother around and watching how she handled the children, watching how she set up the activities, watching how she used the language in a way that the child understood but also speaking to the life in that child. And then it didn't take long, maybe a few months. And I started to make the connections and I started to become effective myself. 
And then I thought, well, we're trying to also build an organization. And so we don't have the luxury of staff following Mrs. Perryman around (laughs) because somebody has to do the work. And that was when I took what I learned from her from a practitioner standpoint and went back to school to get my PhD in social work with a minor in education to start putting these things together in a way where we could scale and we could train other people on the best practices. And so really, you know, I did benefit from a very literacy rich environment. My father's side of the family valued education heavily. In my younger years and all way up, he taught me how to learn, okay? And he taught me how to pursue education, succeed in the classroom. Not saying my mother didn't because my mother taught me how to read. But I am saying that my father had a critical role in that as well. But I always say my father taught me how to learn and my mother taught me how to teach. And so putting both together, they're the reason why I'm here today. And it is their influence that has shaped my passion for this work, has taught me the skills to carry out the work, And then I had to go back to do the research to bring it all together so that we could scale and grow the work. And it's a beautiful thing because you benefited from people, specifically parents, who were incredibly nurturing. They cared about you. And that's probably the most important thing any human being could get in life. I'm curious... How did your mother learn to do all of that? What was her background? Was it through experience or was it through education or combination like you had? Combination. So she's just very talented. You know, there are some things that we are just called to do innately and we figure it out. She was always excellent with children. She taught me to read when I was two and she took magazines with ads and then tied them to commercials. And so I saw the craft symbol and then I saw it on TV and that's how she taught me to read. I said, that's craft, that's Pillsbury, two years old. At that time, she was not a trained educator. These are ideas that came to her on her own, her own creativity. And then when we were in different organizations, she was always appointed to work with the children. She would find engaging activities for them to do always structured, always knowing what is appropriate to say when and what's developmentally appropriate. She just had that gift. So children loved her. Well, an opportunity came to take a position as an early childhood educator. By that point, I was 14 years old. And that's when she found that that's where she was supposed to be all along. Then she got the training and the credentials for the work at that time and was a very effective teacher. Now come to find out, her biological father in Alabama was a school teacher back in the 50s. So part of it, I think, was her genes. But it was just so interesting how her path, it was always there, but all of the pieces didn't connect to so much later, right? I was going to ask you why you think your mother, your father, you, and it sounds like your grandfather as well, Maybe other family members feel so drawn to supporting children in their developmental years. Absolutely. Is it just a genetic thing or is there a bigger story behind it? I think it's a combination of both. So from my father's side of the family, his mother did day work and she said, you know, I want my kids to go to the same schools that the doctors whose houses I'm cleaning. Where did their kids go to school? That's what I want for my kids. So I think... That equality and that sense of having the advantage to be somebody was what drove my grandmother. And she was a stickler for education. She never wanted any of us to miss a day of school. It was so important for us. So my father actually has two doctorates. So I spent, and when I was four years old, he was in school studying all night. And, you know, I would see books and highlighters. So I would go around with a book and his highlighter highlighting. I didn't know what I was highlighting, but I could read the book. And people would ask me, what are you doing, Tracy? And I would say, I'm going to college. You know, I know I'm going, that's where I'm going. So these are the things that I saw as a very little girl. And then books, they would always say, my parents would say, You go to school to learn, but that's not the only place that you need to learn. So they had books everywhere, all kinds of books, beautifully colored books, books with all kinds of different experiences. And it was an expectation, my father's expectation, after we got done at school, he would make us read some more. 
but not just the reading, but like artwork. We always had a house that was full of rich art and we would have pictures of musicians. We would have pictures of people struggling on hard times. It all told a story about perseverance, but it also told a story about diversity of talents and gifts and valuing not just reading and math, but also visual and performing arts and finding out and exposing myself and my sister and my brother to as many experiences as they could so that we could find our gift by seeing all the things that were possible. What an incredible environment you grew up in. I mean, it seems to me like not something I hear a lot of people at least telling me that they've had. You know, I wonder how many people take school for granted, education for granted, and literacy for granted. They don't prioritize it. And more and more, I wonder how technology is impacting children. And I didn't expect to go there quite yet, but might as well. Mm -hmm. Tracy, given your upbringing, bringing your parents, like everything that you're describing, which felt so intentional and the state of things now, which I'm sure there's still intention in it, but we're living in very different times because of technology and the draw to find shortcuts, I suppose, you know, in some conversations about things like artificial intelligence, for example, I've heard the fear that we might be stripping away some of our humanity And we have so many tools at our fingertips that we might not need to learn in the ways that we used to learn. We might not. I mean, kids, I think the statistics around book reading, like you're describing, are going way down. Does that come up in your research or is that something that you give thought to and want to have an influence on how not just children are developing, but how society is developing? So, yes. So, I mean, I think the great majority of educators have been impacted by this conversation. And we teach a lot of different modes of communication, different modes of expression, just like basically my goal has been to recreate my childhood experience. Right. That's my whole intention. So just like I was exposed to the visual performing arts. We require our students to take electives, and those electives are visual arts, performing arts. Also, then we have coding classes as well. But in those performing arts, music. So what we have found in our performing arts work and music are children who come in with these apps. And they told me, I can just use an app and make a beat. And so I can do it all by myself. And so the conversation I have with that young lady is, well, wouldn't it be great if we learned how to be the programmers of these apps rather than the consumer of these apps? And in order to be the programmer, you have to understand musical theory well enough to be able to set up the codes and frameworks so that the beats that you're pulling from here actually make sense. So that was one example of how we explained to children that you're going to still have to utilize a certain level of human intelligence or you just might be left behind, number one. Number two, since technology has grown, one of the content standards for Common Core is understanding different types of informational texts. So just because children are not necessarily reading books or full books or full stories does not mean that they do not have the capacity to read. So what we have done, actually, we started back in 2018, moving over to PowerPoints for our kindergartners and up to bring out information and putting it in kind of a more structured rather than a story with, you know, a beginning and end and a plot cutting to the chase because we understand (laughs) that they're used to looking at text and everything coming so fast. So we actually started by introducing the content in a way that resonated with what they were used to and then moving them back to books, right? (laughs) And things that were less familiar to them, but more familiar to us. So that's one strategy that we've learned. I also do trainings for parents 
and teach them how to help kids comprehend what they're reading. And one of the things that I do for parents is help them relate it to if you are questioning them about who broke my favorite vase, you would be very adept at asking the who, what, where, when, and why, and how. If it's about some drama, you all are very adept at getting information out of your kids and you're very adept at training your kids in many cases to be able to watch a scene to get the information that you want. All we have to do is take that and transform it into reading. So, and then also use language that might be more resonant to what they're used to. So what I say is, instead of who are the characters, who all is over there, right? If something happens, you're going to ask who all is over there, okay? So I've got my child reading a book, who all was in there or who all was over there, okay? Now, when you go to school, you know what that is? That's the characters. So taking... their language, and then backing it back into the common core language and then teaching them because when you go into different spaces and deal with different people, you need to be able to speak their language just as much as you want them to speak yours. So that's one of the examples that we use. That's really helpful. And you read my mind because I'm very curious about how you help children learn outside of the classroom. And just as your parents impacted you so much, all parents could benefit from some of these frameworks. And I'm not a parent. I learn a little bit about parenting through watching my friends and other family members parent their children and certainly notice how challenging it seems. And one concern that comes up often is around the school environment. You know, Do their children have access to teachers that are supportive and are they getting education that works for them? All of the social dynamics that happen at school. There's School is such a huge part of a child's life in general, but so is the home life. So I'm curious, how do you support a child through both elements of their life with their parents and with their teachers and with the other children there around who are certainly a big influence on them. So I'm so glad that you asked this question because one of the challenges over the past couple of decades is the emphasis on academic excellence to the degree that social and emotional learning is compromised. And until a child is emotionally and cognitively present, it is very difficult to introduce content standards and academic content, Right. So that's one of the functions that through after-school programming we can enhance because we understand that there are legislative mandates that require that teachers do certain things. And those are things that teachers can't control. And they only have so many hours in a day. And one person, I don't care who it is, can do it all. That's why we need to work together and each of us take a role. So one of the things we emphasize and elevate is figuring out what it's going to take to have that child in the classroom and ready to learn. And so removing those social emotional barriers, right? Teaching them how to handle conflicts with peers, teaching them how to handle conflicts with teachers. There are, I mean, that's a part of life. You're not going to always get along with everyone who has authority over you. And that doesn't change even when you become an adult. So how do you deal with what is positive, what resources you have, and make them work for you, right? And how do you navigate those waters? And then also at home, parents have to work two jobs. They're under a lot of pressure. They're under a lot of strain. And the school's systems are putting strain on them because they're required to make sure that these children meet certain benchmarks. Their classroom ratios are too large. And they don't have enough time. So all of this is working together. So we feel that we can fill in a few gaps. First of all, as I indicated, helping the child navigate the school landscape. As we're able to help those children navigate the school landscape, parents start watching. And then they start asking questions. How did you do that? Or when they come in to pick up, when they come to observe, and when they come for special events, then they're observing how we handle the children, how we work with the children, how we stimulate their engagement learning, and then they start modeling those behaviors. And once we can start and master those pieces, then we can start getting deep into those content standards and helping with the academic learning. But like I said, we are able to accelerate it because we know how to 
use different forms of language. We could speak the child's language and we could speak the school's language at the same time. And a lot of times the language in from a legislative standpoint, from a policy standpoint, is way more complicated. <laughs> Sounds more complicated than what it is phonics recognition, phonemes, right? And there's other blends and sounds. Okay, it's just as simple. Does your child know the two consonant letter blends, you know, B and L, what does that sound like? But we don't always take the time to just transform the content standards into plain English so parents can help. Give them five to practice. Every little bit helps, right? Okay, and make the instructions clear enough and time-bound enough that is possible because, like I said, every little bit helps. Another thing that we don't always do the best job of and where Elevate helps is helping parents figure out what success looks like. A lot of times we hand them flashcards, we hand them activities, but we don't give them examples of how to know when the child is ready to move on to the next skill. And then we wonder why parents are overwhelmed and they disengage. So those are some of the major areas where we're able to help, plus bringing in enrichment that children wouldn't get otherwise, music classes, cooking classes, arts classes, and then doing a cooking class and then breaking it down. Okay, so we had to double a recipe. You just did fractions, sweetheart. Because I can't do fractions. I said, well, then you couldn't have made this pizza because you had to cut up in the forest. You had to pass it out. You had to tell me how many pieces you had left. So you can't tell me you don't know how to do fractions. It's just we got to get a common language here. Take the tactical activity and then tie it back to the math problem. Those kinds of things Elevate is able to do to support everybody involved because everybody's overwhelmed. The teachers, the parents, and sometimes we are too. But at some point, some things we can do something about and some things we can't. So let's start with what we can control and let's make movement. And as we're ma- able to make baby steps, it doesn't take much for kids. As they see a little bit of progress, they will try so hard. Sometimes we think that we have to teach them how to read a chapter book and they're happy if they get through 10 pages. If we celebrate that, if they're reading three syllable words that they can read before, they're happy with that. So being able to really uh, leverage those small wins, those baby steps and keep those kiddos encouraged, they'll do the rest. If they're at the center of the solution, they rise to the occasion every time. If they're at the center of the solution, they'll rise every time. Yes, they will. I feel like that might be a good segue into the mental health side of things, which is the main focus of this podcast. And when I was introduced to your work, Dr. P, I was really struck by how school might contribute to or could actually help with mental health. And we're in a time of alarming mental health issues. It seems like more so with teenagers, but when we're talking about development, I imagine that these mental health challenges start a lot earlier than many people recognize. Yes. And And I know that's a big part of your work. So, you know, I'm not fully sure where to start, but I'm curious about your thoughts on... How can we start at the earliest age or or the earliest time possible with a child to support them with their mental health, essentially? So I think one of the keys is being truly connected with the children, studying them to understand what is normal behavior for them. There are some children that are just normally quiet. That child is not withdrawn. But a child that's normally boisterous and then all of a sudden is not talking, taking the time to pay attention to flag and say there's an issue here and then try to figure out what might be going wrong. But until you understand what a child's normal patterns are, it's hard to do that. And a lot of times we don't pay attention. Okay. Also, making sure that every child feels like they're actually loved and valued in the classroom to begin with, because a lot of mental health symptoms start because they don't feel welcome when they arrive. If they don't feel that they belong there, then that's going to lead and can take children down a road of having serious mental health symptoms. Because if there's something does happen, they don't feel like there's anyone they can go to for help. So being in tune with children, building rapport with them well enough that if something happens, they feel like they can come to you will remedy a lot. Understanding with young children, mental health symptoms don't necessarily manifest themselves like traditional depression. So a lot of times it can be behavior or conduct issues. Fighting and aggression might be how the symptoms present themselves in a classroom. And so not labeling every child that exhibits aggressive behavior as just being an aggressive child. But again, 
being alert. What are the social conditions under which that is happening? One thing I did do right in the early years, <laughs> this after school and summer work, we had a summer program. And there was a child that was in trouble every single day. His teacher said, I can't handle him. And so I said, well, before I call his mom, let me go sit. Like there was this hallway and there were blinds. There were blinds on one side, but then there was an open window and there was a bush so that I could sit behind that window and I could see the whole playground. And this is what I found. During recess time, nobody would play with this child. So I said, well, let me keep looking. I looked around. All the other boys had new haircuts. He did not. All the other kids, all the other boys have fresh, clean clothes. He did not. We did not put that child out. We called mom and said, this is the social dynamic that's going on. This child does not feel welcome. This child feels excluded. That's why this child is exhibiting what looks like antisocial behavior. Let's start with, go get him a haircut. There are barber schools that will give free haircuts to boys in need. If you need assistance with getting him clean clothes, then you let us know will help. But do what you can do first. She went and got him a haircut. She cleaned his clothes up, put him on a decent pair of shoes. They made him a part of the social group. We did not have another issue the rest of the summer. But see, if it's unaddressed, then it does become a mental health issue. My heart breaks for that child because I imagine those things happen all the time. And this concept of noticing and welcoming someone I was saying to you before we started recording that, you know, it doesn't fully make sense to me why anyone wouldn't be treated like they belong and they're welcome. But it's a complex thing. Sometimes we just don't notice. We have to be intentional about helping people feel welcome and belonged. But to your point, there's a lot of factors because sometimes somebody doesn't tell you when they don't feel those things. And so if you don't ask or if you don't pay close attention, they might mask it really well. Or maybe you'll think, oh, this person's just that way or this person doesn't want it. And it, yeah, that's just really got me thinking about essentially not making assumptions what are some other ways that we can be proactive about making children feel welcome, but also adults as well? I, I know you do a lot of work with women in leadership, and that shows up in all stages of our life. So on a broader scale, how can we as teachers, as parents, as classmates, as colleagues, as friends, what are some of the ways that we can be more intentional about belonging and welcoming others? Absolutely. So one thing that we do at the beginning of the school year for after school, our academic school year, is take a picture of each child, put them on the board with a star behind it. So everybody is a superstar. I call them the superstars, right? We all start at the same level and that level is greatness, right? I tell parents during uh, an orientation, zero tolerance policy for making anybody feel physically or emotionally unsafe. And that includes adults. We don't tolerate physical or relational aggression whatsoever. And I tell parents, it seems harsh, but once you allow it, the environment becomes toxic so fast and it is nearly impossible to clean it up. Once you allow that element of hatefulness or enmity into a space. So that's why we have to be strict. Everything has to be rooted in love. And understanding that people come from different environments and expectations, right, of what is appropriate. You know, there are individuals from the standpoint that we encourage children to be independent and self-problem solve, right? The question we have to ask, though, is what is developmentally appropriate? What does that look like? What does independence look like at 2, 4, 10 and what does independence look like if you're the other in the room? So it's different if everybody's alike. For that young man, he's the only one without a haircut. Being self-assertive is a little different for him, right? So to be careful with that. And there are even children that the reason why they're excluded is because they're social skills. I had one. <laughs> he was a sweetheart, but he just had not, he had been isolated to the point where he didn't have to deal with different peers. So he was used to being able to do whatever he wanted to do, and it was always okay. 
Well, he goes to school and he's about 10 years old and he keeps sticking his finger in people's personal space. And they were just like, he's got to stop. And so he was upset with them. And a lot of times he was sticking his finger in their face to get their attention, but it was not the appropriate way. In that case, we had to take him to the side and say, hey, you got to learn how to get along in a group. This is the reason why isolating you is because we need to get you some social skills. And in that point, no, we coached that child to figure out how to get along. So it's not always that the group is off in their appraisal, but even with them, we said, well, you see he's different in the way he communicates. Give him some grace. And on the other side, we said, well, now you got to learn how to get along. So there are times where we do have to lead children in being individual, being more assertive for themselves and teaching them how to speak up for themselves. There are children that are bullied Sometimes if though we have the zero tolerance policy, if I see that there's a child that cries every time somebody says something to say, you know, they're doing that because you give them the reaction that they want. So it's a game for them. And I'll tell them, I said, it's just like the remember the tickle me Alamo while you hit the button and he sings and dances. I said to you, to them, you become that game where they hit the same button. You going to make no. I tell parents that, too. I said a lot of times your kids are doing that because you're acting like the Tickle Me Elmo. They push your button and you scream and, you know, and it's a show and they think it's a joke. So I've had to tell parents that too, but I've said that to children who are bullied. I said, I'm going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it because we're not going to lie here. I said, but next time I said, but see, you got to go to school and Dr. P's not going to be there. So therefore, when you go to school, you tell them, they say, I don't like your shoes. You tell them, I don't care what you think. They're my shoes. I wear what I want. You wear what you want. And go on about your business. Take you a book and go sit on a swing and read and let them know that you're going to be all right no matter what. Their friendship is not that important. Not that you're going to cry over it consistently. Yes, we have emotions, but you have to also understand when those emotions are being used against you. And those children who learn it, then they will offer to play and they will come. And I said, now don't be too excited. Still, I have to think about it. Because see, then next week, they'll kick you out again just to see if they can get you to come back. I said, oh, no, don't play easy. But there are times we have to do a mixture, right, of getting people ready to deal with hostile environments because in Elevate, we can control it, but we can't always control it. But then in the space that we can control, affirming every child from day one. Because I also say children who are happy behave and children who feel good about themselves are happy. So if we can operate from a normative context of everybody being somebody, I find that a lot of the bullying and that kind of stuff goes by the wayside. And if a child has an issue or an issue of stress, they feel comfortable to come and tell an adult and talk through it. And we help them problem solve. And if it's something happening in their environment that is detriment to their mental health, then we have to have the conversations with everybody involved that is causing that situation. And we have to bring the adults in to figure out, now, what are we going to do about it? I'm really impressed with your knowledge, the experience. I mean, given that this conversation started back when you were getting started and just to see the journey of how much you've learned about children and all of these elements, these factors that impact them. I'm also curious, you were sharing with me earlier about the two books that had come out on Amazon, and you have a third one that just came out as of the time of this recording about women's leadership, which I hope we get to explore as well. But the first two books, you were describing the difference, I believe. The first one was about urban children growing up in urban environments, and the second one, suburban. Is that right? Yes. So basically, we've won state awards for our work and some other awards around innovation and excellence. And so we would always get questions about why are you so successful? How are you able to do the work in the marriage you're doing it? Meanwhile, COVID happens and we have to take this curriculum and administer it online on a dime. So that got me to thinking, how can we share these lessons learned on such a larger stage? Because if our local community is having these questions, probably individuals from many communities nationally are having the same questions. So we started with the context in which we were operating. At that time, it was an urban school district and the students we were serving were probably over 90 percent African-American. And the research has said for a long time that there are disparities in African-American achievement by the measure of standardized testing. Now, what I know is there is no differences in African-American aptitude. 
So the question is, how do we close the opportunity gap? That's always been my question. And so I shared that curriculum of the activities we've done and our why through the first book, Elevating Futures. Now, while I'm writing Elevating Futures, Center of Hope gets a call to move into a suburban district, which is overwhelmingly not of color. And so we had argued for decades about equity and culturally relevant teaching. And what that simply means is teaching that relates the content standards to the everyday experiences of the kids that are in front of you at that time. So what we were not going to be are hypocrites, that we were culturally responsive to African-American kids. But then when we were put in a context of non-African-American kids, then all of that advocacy just goes out the window. No, that wasn't going to be us. Was not going to be Center of Hope. So we rushed. Mind you, we get the call to move into the suburban district in May, and we've got to be up and running with a year-round solution by October. <laughs> so I had to call back Mrs. Perryman, get some help. As I said, we've got to have a curriculum ready to go for these kiddos. They deserve it. And so once we wrote it, we said, well, we just wrote this curriculum for 28 weeks. Let's share a quarter of it, seven weeks or seven activities with a larger community who, again, probably is having the same question. So what happens when your community is not all African-American or it's not all urban. What do you do for that population of children? And so that's how the curriculum Elevate came out. The frameworks are the same. The readings are carefully chosen to speak to the children where they're at. Could you share some of the, or an example of some of the differences between where people are at based on where they're living, what environment that they're in, Because I don't really know, like, what is the difference between a child growing up in an urban environment versus a suburb environment? And how do you approach that? So I would say in an urban environment, there are well-documented risks, right? There's a chance that you may not, you may be expected to pass the same proficiency test, but you may not have had all the resources. You may not have had the best curricular books. So there's an equity issue. There is a disproportionate exposure to poverty, right? There may be a disproportionate exposure to crime. So therefore, that child is going into the classroom, not necessarily with the same freedom to just focus on learning. Let me put it like that. So for that group, I would have to sign them readings that talk about the neighborhoods they live in, but not just talk about the neighborhoods they live in, because that kind of exacerbates the sense of fear. But giving them examples of people who grew up like them that were able to transcend those barriers and do things positive. That's one thing that you're going to want to look at for an urban environment. Also, understanding from an identity standpoint, they look a lot of times if you're overwhelmingly of color, you may not look like the beauty standard in the L'Oreal commercial, even though A lot of our commercials are making progress in terms of being inclusive and showing different faces and showing different hair textures. But we still have a ways to go. And the residual effects of devaluating certain skin tones and different hair textures, those things, our children are going to deal with that for probably some time, right? It doesn't just go away. So for them, I give them readings with pictures of people who look like them with beautiful, thick, full, you know, four coiled hair, right? Because it just tells them without even talking about it. It tells them, okay, well, if the reading has somebody looks like me in it, I must be somebody. Okay, now, since I see myself, I might be excited to figure out or listen or read what's in this book because now I see somebody who represents me, right? Now, when I'm dealing in a suburban environment, a lot of times those concepts are already understood. There's a lot of media that reinforces how they look, how they show up in the world. So for them, then my focus is a little different and we can get right to the chase of it. I can do anything. I can be anything. And then for them, it's like, how do we channel it? How do we plan? Because I tell them now confidence comes from two places, competence and character. So for them, I'm like, okay, how are we going to get there? Because you have the resources you need. Now, Dr. P is going to show you how to use them because the expectation is that you're going to be the best and brightest. And that's not to say for my urban kiddos, they don't have the same expectations. But sometimes to build rapport, we have to deal with some other elephants in the room. And for them to truly feel like their value. And we're not just saying that because we're their teachers. So sometimes we have to dig a little deeper for them to know, like, no, they really do get me. Okay. All right. I trust them. All right. Then I can say, okay, competence, character, confidence. Now, how are we going to get y'all there? 
I'm sitting over here saying wow a lot <laughs> while my microphone is muted because I'm just in awe of this important work that you're doing and addressing things that really need to be addressed more with the awareness and the education and just the elephant in the room, like you mentioned. I feel like I haven't heard enough people talking about it that way and making sure that everyone really feels a sense of belonging as you're so passionate about. It does take that intention and clarity on on differences so that people feel truly welcome and, and develop that trust. And that leads me to wanting to learn more about the next stage of work that you're doing. I should say another element of work that you're doing with the new book about women's leadership. And I'm curious how you made that shift from children at a developmental age to, I imagine, adult women, but I suppose woman could mean a lot of different ages. So tell me about that and that progression in your work. So I felt like the work that I've done with children has been my why, right? That's my call. And so I felt at this juncture, I can start to talk about how I was able to answer that call and fulfill it. And I felt that there were a lot of lessons for women in this. There have been so many struggles, right? In Toledo, they told us that there's a nonprofit for every hundred people. So it was an extremely saturated market getting off the ground and then being a small upstart family founded. <laughs> there are a lot of perceptions around what that means and what it means for the community. And people don't see all of the extra work that goes into it. Like, for example, we started in 97. I got a modest regular paycheck probably starting in 2012 and didn't get health insurance until 2015 or 2016. And so people don't see all of the sacrifices while you're constantly being told no, 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 no. On the other side, you have people who need to just go on and tell you no rather than stringing you along. So there were so many lessons. And what I've always tried to do is give people what I didn't get, right? The knowledge that could have accelerated this much faster. My goal is for other ladies not to suffer in that. And then also, you know, you have to fight your way into the conversation. And then as a woman, you're labeled a lot for that. And you can be demonized a lot for just doing what it takes to survive, you know, just for speaking up to say, no, that's not right. Or no, that's not what we agreed to. And that's a problem. And so a lot of women are in conflict and turmoil about doing the right thing for themselves. Because nobody gives them permission to speak up for themselves, to be proud of their work, to be proud of their accomplishments, to pursue their accomplishments. And so I wanted to write this book as giving women the permissions that through my parents I was given. But I understand that most women, just by the way I've showed up in spaces and my approach and the looks I've gotten, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I guess I'm the only one that got the permission <laughs> To speak up. So because the looks are telling me that nobody has told you it's okay to be honest. Nobody's told you it's okay to hold people accountable without apologizing for it. Nobody's told you it's okay to aim for the stars. And so silently, I saw women silently conflicted and bitter because nobody told them it was okay to make the decisions for their lives that they really wanted. And I felt like if I can make a contribution to at least tell women that they have options, then I said that would be a piece of my legacy that I would want to leave. It's again, so beautiful and so needed. And it's something that perplexed me. I guess I also was raised with parents that believed in me and encouraged me and supported a lot of the dreams that I had. And as an adult, sometimes I'm faced with the reality that not every woman has that. In fact, I have been reading this book called Inclusion on Purpose that specifically addresses 
the barriers that women of color face. And I felt so heartbroken to see these statistics, you know, and I also frustrated that isn't brought to attention quite as much. I think we hear a good amount of information about disparities with gender, but I certainly was very ignorant about the impact of not just gender, but also other forms of identity. And I'm curious if that comes up in your work and and how you can support women where it's not just a matter of gender, but there are other factors where they might feel like the other person in the room. Yes. And that's one thing that when I taught at the university level uh, with social workers, I used to always tell them, you go someplace, always sit and observe and find out who the other is in the room. I understand that the other changes. Who's the different one? And I said, it can shift and make it a practice no matter who the other might be to make them feel welcome because the environment can change things, right? So there's no permanent majority necessarily and there's no permanent other. Not necessarily depends on where you are and where you're functioning, where you're working. So yes, all of those factors come into play. In the book, I keep it general because there's going to, as soon as we define six others, there will be a seven. So what I decided to do was focus on building, helping women build their brand, whatever it might be, and stand by it. And I don't have the poem I wrote in the book, but even about my own identity, you know, a mouth that's too big for some was my mouth and I stand by my brand. Whatever the problem someone might have, it is, I'm like, get with it, get over it or get out the way because I can only be myself. And that's what I try to give women, whatever trait or factor they feel might be an issue or point of contention. Give them permission. That's who you are. Build it. Build your brand. Stand by it. There's already somebody else. And the person that somebody they're forcing you to emulate is already here. And a marketing team cannot create an identity for you. You got to do that. All they can do is enhance the delivery of that identity to the public. But I spend the first two chapters of my book talking about branding from a place of authenticity. And in order to do that, you got to figure out what is it that you really want? Like forget if there was nobody watching, if you had no parameters, no current job that you felt like you had to finish, no obligations, what would you be doing with yourself? And what would you want to be doing with yourself? Because those are your values. Those are things that you find to be important. And when we're honest about what is important to us, we can be happy. And I understand like the pressure of socioeconomics. And I've told women, well, might say you're not doing this, you're not doing that, oh, but I'm happy. And when you've done the self-work of really identifying your values and your identity, you could say that and mean it. Because when I started Center of Hope, I was, you know, U of M graduated. And in my hometown, I was criticized a lot for not just taking a government job or a corporate job. And people called me names. They called me lazy. They told me I was too lazy to work. They told me I didn't, you know, have the social and emotional skills to get along with people. I didn't want to work for anybody. I didn't want to work with anybody. The things that they said, it was building because it didn't look like it was generating the revenue. And, you know, people called me low motivational, said, you've got this U of M degree and you're not doing anything with it. These are the things that people in my own hometown said about me. But I just felt called to keep moving forward. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out. All I knew is I didn't want what they wanted. And so that pressure, I went through it firsthand. And for the most part, you know, when you have a certain type of personality, people don't just say stuff to your face. So they just kind of, you know, laugh at you. I'm like, well, as long as you don't say it to my face, you laugh me behind my back all you want to. That's all right. Because I don't want what you want. Okay. I'm sorry. I just don't. It's not in my DNA. Just, I don't know can't do it. And so that's where I start women. Whatever traits you have, whatever you love, that's what it is. Accept it and lean into it. No apologies. And when people say what they got to say, just say, well, I'm happy and be comfortable with it because the world is looking for the next you. They're not looking for the next them. They're already here. Build your mark. You may blaze the trail for them. You may be the person positioned to take whatever field you're in, whatever interest into the next direction. But if you're running down the wrong lane, fooling over there with something that you were not called to do, then that's where the conflict comes in and the tension comes in. Because like, did I make the right choice? Learn it, lean into it, and then leverage it. Well, after that, I feel like you're called to be speaking on this. And (laughs) as before we started recording, you were sharing with me your passion for workshops and not just teaching and writing, but presenting, giving keynotes. And I feel like that's what you just gave me and the listener These words of inspiration, of motivation, they really landed with me. 
And I feel so grateful that you've spent this time today sharing all of this so that they can land with other people who are tuning in. And maybe they thought they were just going to learn about childhood development and after school programs, but you have so much to share based on your journey. And you do it in such a profound way. And it's just such a thrill and an honor to learn from someone like you and for you to be passing on all these messages. You've instilled a lot of hope in me. You've educated me in ways, which is clearly one of your gifts. And it's just a beautiful story. And there's so much more to unfold for you. So for the listener who is interested in the books we've referenced or wants to hear Dr. P speak or invite her to speak or take a class. She is doing so much for you. And I will put that in the description. The easiest way to reach her is through her website where it's all laid out beautifully, all of everything in one place. And that's right there on your podcast player. You can look underneath it in the description and click that link and or you can click the link to my website wellevator.com which I love that Dr. P and I both use the word elevate in our work that synergy felt so exciting for me at least <laughs> but wellevator.com there is a blog post written on this episode all the resources so you can go through it you can reread some of these profound quotes that I've been writing down. There was one point where I really had to finish typing it before I was ready to respond because it just resonated with me so much. So if you're feeling the same way and you want to go back and reference anything, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And throughout the blog post are resources as well as a list of them at the bottom with, again, the multiple ways that you can get in touch with Dr. P. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. It's been just so, I don't even know what word, it's beyond words. (laughs) So I'm not even going to try to describe it. It's just been so, I'll leave it there. (laughs) Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm humbled by the invitation and it has been delightful speaking with you as well. I'm so glad. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.